Yeah. And that's the thing. Thinking about just again revisiting this idea of um, how things are so closely connected to stuff that we already understand. Welcome back. How's it going? This is the August edition. Can't believe it's August already. It's the August edition of Drums in the Shed. Dave Walsh podcast. It's very strange to um, to have had... It feels like a lot's happened in the past month. Um, so, yeah, it's quite strange to be recording this because I, I have loads of things to talk about during the last month and then I came to sit down today and uh, it was completely blank just had this kind of blank thing in my head about um, yeah what what to say what to share what to talk about um, instead of just you know some sort of rambling you know meaningless news kind of um, update that nobody's interested in um, things in the past you know but yeah but that thing i was playing at the beginning there it, it's something that i've been I, I posted something a few weeks ago on the on the gram you know and I had a few people reply it was just this flam um thing and it was again because i hadn't really been practicing much stuff like that for a while you know and it was I'd opened up the Mitchell Peters book, Dexterity. Great book if, you, um, if you're if you looking for a, a really good book to buy and you want to get away from the kind of, what I would say is the norm. Um, go go down a different alley, so to speak. Then, I, you know, the Mitchell Peters book, I recommend it very much so. And there's a couple of other drummers who, who I know are, uh, who are quite interested in making the drum community move on from the the cliches in, in inverted commas you know as in the Lawrence Stone and the Wilcox and and the um and the Reed you know all of which books are I mean particularly the Reed I'm, I'm a big fan of the Ted Reed's impatient thing as anyone that knows me knows but there's lots and lots of mileage you can get out of that book and the Wilcox and I grew up on the Wilcox and my rudimental study Wilcox is still the source for rudiments for me um, as a, in a, a sort of generic sense of the word, I've never been a, a Vic Firth or a, a pass rudiments person, really. Even though actually at college and, and in my teaching now, I tend to share the pass ones, the percussive arts society ones, because they're free. You know, they just you can just download them, and uh, and I don't think the Vic Firth ones probably are. But I'm you know, again, you know, this whole thing of. Um, following companies and supporting companies and all that and advertising for them yeah i've had some thoughts on that i don't yeah, don't want to get into that really too much it's quite a negative vibe um don't want to sound miserable and embittered and old um which i'm not by the way but um yeah i was thinking a lot about about the online thing and sharing um like hashtagging people's products you know and adding them in and then them not in any way responding to you and 
you know, there's always just a weird thing on what companies believe sells products. Um, and the more I kind of look at things, the more convinced I am that a lot of, you know, the social media thing is a, it's a great outlet, outlet for kind of the jazzmatels, so to speak. But the actual quality, genuine quality of things, things that, um, you know, have, have real depth and meaning, I don't think are translated very well in that medium. So I think, you know, uh, I think there's a place for it, absolutely. But I, I think if you're trying to, I don't know, if you're trying to put across something that has, um, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, I'm not sure. Just a bit, just a funny vibe. It's just a funny, it's always been a funny thing. I always found it very strange thing. I kind of go in and out of, um, in and out of love with, you know. But um, anyway, that was not what I wanted to talk about at all. Just again, that's another random thought just coming into my head. But you know, back to the thing of the books thing, the Mitchell Peters. You know, I'd recommend that book, Dexterity. Um, it's probably easy to get on Amazon these days. It wasn't when I was when I was a kid. It was, I think. I've done an episode talks about that book. Anyway, go back into the archive of the podcasts, and you'll find. Um, You'll find, um, I think you even find the episode has got the picture of that. Um, it's got the picture of that particular book on the front. So, that easy to buy these days off Amazon. But there was this flam exercise in there, very interesting, um, which was, I, I like the displaced double. Right, left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right. Quite an interesting feeling playing that rudiment. Any of you um, play it? Maybe you've never played it. Have a go. It's um, like if you're trying to get if you're trying to get accents on the beat with doubles. It's. Um, it's kind of anti-technical in a way because if you think about it, you know, uh, when you learn doubles, the, the whole idea is that when doubles are played badly, they sound. When they're played well, they sound. That's just a right-handed. I'm slightly exaggerating the left arm there because I tend to practice this thing of, of articulation of the second stroke. So, when you practice the articulation of the second stroke a lot, which I did, and still do occasionally, but I did at one point practice it a lot, you end up in a situation where it kind of becomes an easier way to play a double stroke role by displacing the sticking by one, um, by one of the uh, the right rights to start with a right, left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right. Yeah. And because if you get into this thing of... this thing of accent in the second stroke, then you get into this vibe of actually... it becomes more addictive. It's quite addictive feeling to play the doubles and then to get that articulation. And then if you move it around the kit, 
you'll hear that you'll always hear people playing this kind of doosh to doosh to doosh to doosh where they they if they're right-handed you get that sound and it's a the left hand's kind of ghosting the right hand's playing this kind of articulated thing with the double the second double's accented the right hand's moving around the instrument yeah, we all know this it's all um what i'm saying is all known there's nothing sort of um mysterious about it but if you haven't practiced that thing ever then i recommend it but i would err on the side of caution because it's an addictive vibe i've known a few people who are um, very 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 good drummers uh, a couple of which i've taught tended to kind of get into overusing that a little bit you know because it's just such an addictive feeling to play you know because just be so careful it's that thing of a if you think of another an analogy in life where you know just because something feels good to do doesn't mean that it's always appropriate to do it you know that's all i'm saying be be, be careful with the displaced double <laughs> yeah it's not that much of a big deal but um it's worth considering just you know just the start thing of getting into pattern playing and, and relying on sort of patterns to um to um dictate your personality that's what i'm trying to say you know because that can be um it can be tricky i mean like i've talked a lot in previous podcasts about this idea of making rudiments your own or, or patterns your own by finding your own way of articulating them now that's different but the displaced double is kind of universally or generically you know um understood in that way so it's it's you know you're 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 you're, you're buying into a, a pre kind of um, pre-ordained club you know like the bludger thing you know i like playing the bludger as much as anybody and uh some people like playing it like that i don't like playing like that. i like playing it as triplets and i like it to sound like it's behind i just got that vibe about it like the idea of multiple flams before there's, there's a few different things and that's it played with the with traditional grips it always sounds a bit different but that's played with the opposite sticking that's left left to right bludger. anyway you've got to work kind of hard to get the bludger to sound like your own vibe and it's like the two levels of anything, isn't it? You've got the generic level of, hi, my name's Dave, and I'm going to learn to play the bludger. Bludger. And then you've got, hi, my name's Dave, I've learned to play the bludger, now I'm going to try and find a way of making it sound like Dave, you know, as opposed to sounding like every other bludger player, which there are many, you know. And if you look at someone like Gary Novak, who's the person I... Um, uh, was the first person I ever heard really play the bludger. To be honest with you, I know it's a Tony. It's supposed to be a Tony Williams thing. Uh, that's the the history of it. Um, Tony, it, it was always played in that black digger that black digger that 
like the guitar sort of straighter thing. I'm, I'm the person that I when I first heard it because I was listening to Bob Berg a lot when in the nineties. Novak played with Berg, and he also Novak did. You know, they, there was that band with Chick, the elect, that other electric band that happened, which um, which Bob Berg played in that band as well with 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 Patucci. It was Novak on drums. Time Warp, great album, actually. Um, anyway. Not to go into some big other tangent, which is very, very likely to have happened just then. Um, Novak was the first person I heard play the Bludger, and it was he was the person that I kind of, you know, that I was trying to emulate. It's just that thing of hear something, you go, oh, I like the sound of that. You try and emulate it, and then you go, oh crap, I'm going to make that on my own. And uh, I, I make it my own, very, very, very slightly because it's quite hard to make your own by by the weight of the um the hand that's not playing the grace note the hand that's playing the loud the louder so if it's left right left right right left you know whatever it is um with these got these really big these are really heavy sticks I practice with these all the time at the moment on, on, on the pad it's really nice they're hard to play and they're quite hard to control the weight but it's that thing of you know weight control of weight for me is about sound you know so um well it's not just about sound but it's the primary thing that um that one uses to make one sound warmer i think anyway just to say that I will always, if I'm playing a right-hand led bludge so it's the see the first the first thing is the blur, which is the flam, right left. The left will be loud, weighty, probably using uh, a little bit more hand or forearm weight than um, than is entirely necessary, shall we say? And then um, you know, and then you get the. So you get the flam and then the right, right, black, da, da, black, black, da, da, black. I'm, I'm singing it in semiquavers to make it a little bit easier to to understand. Um, but I would play it blega da blah, blega da blah as a, as a triplet because I tend to I tend to air on the side of the triplet things with a lot of stuff. But you know, um, the left hand, the next accent, so you get the blad did di da. Blah di di da, left right, sorry, right left right right left. That second left again has the same weight. So you get this gas ga 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 ga. So it sounds a little bit like that. Bunch don't catch them dance that gas that that kind of fives thing. But it's not it's not fives because it's threes. But it's got a similar kind of lilt or laid backness to it. Now, you know, there you go. So I'm explaining the way I tried to find a personality. Sorry, find my personality or share my personality in the bludger in a generic pattern which is known by many and shared by many and shared widely. So um so we're back anyway, yeah, we're back to this thing of the displays double. Um, and 
uh, looking at you know looking at this thing of of, um, of kind of understanding how we we make something our own so like you know the paradiddle diddle something i've discussed on one of the podcasts um at great length about how i make the paradiddle little my own as well make it sound like my own and, and go and find that little nugget of information buried in one of the many episodes that are available for free on podomatic um and uh yeah that was some pathetic kind of um, advertisement there which i'm not really bothered about but um if you want to go and find it you'll find that in one of the episodes um where i talk about you know i think it's pretty obvious the episodes make it your own or something i think it's called can't remember the name of any of the episodes it's all just such a blur really you know but i got to this thing of um back to the dexterity thing this huge tangent well there's the displaced double thing and all that kind of stuff about um you know understanding the kind of physics of um of things about how they work you know um so that was kind of a little bit of the background there about the displaced double and and what that's kind of how that links to what i'm talking about because i had this i saw this rudiment um, well, it's not a rudiment. It was a pattern in the dexterity book really early on in the in, in the flam, the quaver flam patterns. You know, as with a lot of these books, you know, uh, there's a lot there's a lot in the eighth note stuff, the quaver stuff. You know, really, there's a lot in that because it, you're just taking um, you take those ideas slowly because they're presented to you in a kind of in a manageable division. And one must not just blindly practice it, but try and understand what the hell's going on. And that was the thing I was talking about at the beginning, where, you know, you think the sticking for this thing is a, is a right, left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right. And a flam precedes the second uh, left or the second right. So you get this, you know, it's got this... got the same sound as that displaced double thing but it's trickier to play because you've got right left flam right flam right left flam to the left right flam to the right left flam to the left so if you can think about just visualizing that or if you want to write the sticking down it's right left right left flam and then right left right as a flam so it's just a displaced double stroke roll with a flam before each second stroke in the same hand. You know, right, left, left, right, right, left, left. Right, left, flam, left, right, flam, left, flam, right, flam, left, flam. It's quite hard to say. But the clue is actually in the sticking. And this is what you should always do with all of these rudimentary patterns. Um, is to sort of zoom back and go, what's the sticking regardless of subdivision just the sticking if you if you laid the sticking out uh flat as in uh, with no division so the even division um so there's no articulation and there's no rhythmical difference just the same um then what you end up with is single strokes but then you need to put the single strokes into some closer rhythmical 
values in order to get closer to the thing you're trying to play. And this is the key. And this is where, this is hand to hand, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. Probably one of the first, if you're studying classical snare drum, probably one of the first rhythms that you learn is like a marching rhythm. Often played right, left, right, right, left, right, right, left, right. Yeah, or if you're right-handed, it's often played all with the right hand apart from the, 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 the semi-quaver. The last, the, that second semi-quaver is always played with the left hand. So it's just right, 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 right. And that's the kind of habit that a lot of us get into, I think. Um, now, you may, you may be very, very... Um, you know, you may very, very, be very good and always play things hand to hand. So, it's, so there's always kind of an equality built into it. And it's a nice pattern. The, any patterns that have got odd numbers, when you play them hand to hand, they have built in equality because you always have to play the same thing starting with the other hand. Right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. Excellent. Like triplets, right, left, right, left, right, left. It's an equal thing playing groups of five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Sorry, I'm trying to set up the speed, but... You know, the fives are great for that. It's, there's this, the irony of, the, of the, the equality is in the odd number. The, um, the equalising or the um the, the the thing that gives equal uh is is not so much in the even number um because if you're playing four semiquavers it leads back to the right hand one two three four one two three four one two three four one two three right left right left right left right left right left right left or two semiquavers or six semiquavers it's all very right-handed you have to kind of put some double in there or play it all again with the left hand in order for it to be equal that's one of the reasons why i developed when i was really getting into roles and I was presented with a seven stroke roll. I was never into that idea because I, I didn't like the fact that it was always played, you know, you start with the right hand, the accent's always the left hand. So I developed, it's in that foundations book thing I've written and it's in that kind of foundations episode, the first one where you're going. The idea is that is that that when you go when you play the accent you play the next two doubles with the same hand. So right right left left right right left 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 right right left left right 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 left left right right left, and you get this thing linking back to the the thing that's always difficult um, when it's kind of seen as anti-technical where you play loud and a quiet stroke. It's not anti-technical at all. Uh, at all of course and um, what i'm saying is, is a bit nonsense really there especially when you get into a kind of uh, a more developed technique it then becomes certainly not um anti-technical or, or or bad technique it actually becomes you know a very good technique because you're able to articulate uh, within any um within any, any kind of pattern with a single hand playing a loud or quiet loud or whatever you want to do and the one i practiced for years was this um with the left hand because i wanted so the fundamental is this 
Jubilee, you can hear two different sounds there. I could play it on the side of the, the, the practice pad actually. But it's just not a very nice sound. That's a bit spiky. So I'm adding in three lefts. So I'm going right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. So that's fine. But I want a backbeat on two and four. So I add in a a, a left hand in between the um, the other two left hands that, that synchronizes with the right hand. So you get this right, left, right, left, together, left, left, right, left, right, left, together, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, together, left, right, left, etc., etc. And that you know that moment. He's a tap strike tap movement. You can think about it like that in a molar sense. Um, there's lots of different ways of thinking about it. That's how I tend to think about it. Is a is a tap. It's a pickup stroke to the strike and then a release. So as you, you're as I talk about this a lot when I'm teaching uh, people that are you know, trying to get trying to help them with um, thinking about a more ergonomic movement around the instrument. You know. Um, there's always the when when you're going to strike something when you're going to hit something there's always this free energy the molar idea nature it's actually nature it doesn't belong to anybody people it is actually nature don't be pulled into anybody's branding of, of nature you know this is not nestle this is not um this is not um Whatever the I don't know anything about these brands, water or something. You know when water is branded, and everyone says it's um, it's it's Evian. It's just water. Yeah, yeah. Or molar is just nature. It's just physics. It's a pure thing of physics. So don't you know? Do your own thing with it as well. But there's a lot of information out there. Lots of great players. Not saying anything. I'm describing it as well now. You know, there's lots of great players. But I definitely don't take any ownership of uh, molar technique, as some other players seem to have done. Which I'm not into that vibe. And that's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with teaching it. But it's just the ownership thing. It doesn't belong to anybody. It's nature. Rhythm doesn't belong to anybody. And neither does physics. You know, you don't see. You know, <coughs> engineers—they build things. They don't—they don't own the physics. They—they they, they understand physics and they build things, and then they go, "This is a thing that I've built, which uses this kind of engineering." You know, whatever. Chemists—you know—they understand the elements. They bring things together to create a thing. They don't say that um, you know, thallium or whatever one of these element things it belongs to them it's a thing that occurs in nature and is um, always maybe you know brought together by elements and uh, i mean you know who, who what who, what does who does steel belong to you know it's long since we I mean, go back in the history book somebody you know invented that thing but at the end of the day i mean i suppose that's a level above what i'm talking about molar is it i suppose it's just that thing of understanding what it is and um, the thing i'm talking about is that is that is when you when you go to strike you you release the stick so you get this tap stroke and then you strike and then if you let go immediately you get this idea of three strokes for the price of one essentially and you can really work on that the motion of that in lots of different ways to make lots of different uh, levels or articulations of sound like trying to get this really a 
don't know if that's coming across so well. It's not brilliantly played. I'm just sort of forcing the issue a bit. But I'm really trying to play it very quietly and very loud with a small amount of energy. <laughs> so, you know, it's not about it being perfect. It's about having that understanding of what it is in order to practice it and to hone it over time. I'll never, you know, I'll never feel like I'm playing that perfectly, but I'll get just get better at playing that thing, you know. So, um, anyway, another, sorry, that was another tangent. But it was just that, talking about that idea of, of, um, of multi-bounce, about, about the idea of, uh, of where good technique comes from, you know, and then where good technique leads you to. You know, because you end up in a place where, you know, the good the good technique is um, opens up doors and allows you to kind of think about things in a more creative way. So, back to this first thing I was talking about, which is now like half an hour ago. Sorry, this is very slow. Um, but you start off with this pattern. Right, left, right, left, right, left, right. And it's an equal pattern. It's an equality pattern, I call it, because you have to play the same amount of effort with both hands at some point in time. Now, in order to get to this, in order to get to this rudiment, well, it's not a rudiment, sorry, I keep calling it a rudiment, it's not a rudiment, it's this pattern that Mitchell Peters in the Dexterity book has written. I realised that we're back to swing again. The, 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 when you when you tripletize or swing, many things, many good things happen. Uh, and I'm not saying that straight stuff isn't great. It is brilliant. It's just that you know the, the answer to a lot of slightly complex things that are perceived to be straight, as in quaver, 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 with a flam on the first quaver and the third quaver but the sticking is right left left right right left left this is what i'm talking about keep up sorry it's very complicated especially if you're listening to this and doing something else you're like this guys i can't get my head around this but if you sit down and take a minute to just go over what i've talked about and really analyze it you'll know exactly what i'm saying the idea that because because we have flams involved in this sticking that are in a, what i what i perceive to be or what i perceive to be anyway an awkward place you end up in this thing where you... I was ta I was tackling it from the wrong direction and I forgot to follow my own rules and my own kind of advice, which I give all the time, is look at the sticking with no rhythmic values. Just look at what the sticking is. The sticking is actually right, left, right, left, right, left. Interesting. And then you add a rhythmical value to it. Right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. That's still right, left, right, left, by the way, because there's equality here. We're just playing hand to hand. Of course we are. Now, what I need to do with that is swing it. So it sounds like some sort of ding, ding, da, ding, ding, da, ding, some sort of terrible swing beat. Hello, ding, ding, da, ding, I'm playing jazz. Not very swingy. Doesn't matter. What you're, what you're understanding here is the connection between alternating flams and swung doubles and anywhere within a pattern where you need to get a flam in there is you need to get in get a swung double involved so if we start to swing that pattern 
now I'm going to really swing it. Now it just sounds like sounds like I'm just playing flams. What you'd say is flam taps. There, there's your generic flam tap. A flam tap is double stroke with a flam at the beginning of it. Okay. But this is a slightly different stick and this is the displaced double, but you want to make it try and sound the same. You've got to try and make them sound the same. But the, the stickings are subtly different. And uh, the second one, the Mitchell Peters thing, is on the face of it is trickier it's actually quite easy to play now the thing that we the thing that we may be um, limited by here is how quick can we play hand to hand not or that's the other that's the other cheat way of, it's not a cheat way of playing it but it's the way that a lot of people play you know, you hear people like very, very fast brushes. They do the cheat, the right, left, left, right, left, left, right. So that's what that is, or, or the other way around. Right, left, right, left, sorry, left, right, right, left. Or, um, so, you know, you know what I'm saying. That's played right, 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 right with the left in the gap and then hand to hand is the hardest for me of all of them and um, it's because i've always been quite right-handist and lazy uh, so the idea is to try and swing them at high speed I kind of realised that, you know, maybe that's my max. But if I think about it as it is on paper, it's a slow old game, everybody, you know. Well, it is for me. And I think I'm probably, you know, speaking for many of you out there as well. Whereas, if we understand it, you know, as a, as a, a, a in relation to a sticking, and then analyse... How can we arrange a basic rhythmical value of that sticking in order to connect to the end result? That's the answer to that's a long rambly answer to that thing. Um, so I, you know, I encourage you to have a have a go at that, have a practice of that. It's the same as the, the you know the idea that you know um, one of my favourites is is flam accents. Yeah. There's your basic sticking. Right, left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. You know, it's it's a paradiddle, isn't it, with a swung double. 
So there's your paradiddle. So if you change the rhythmic values, just play it all evenly the sticking is actually right left right right left right left left right left right obviously yeah so um again so it's it's it's, it's an interesting way to find uh, speed with that rudiment if you've been you know if you've been practicing been practicing paradiddles for years and we're finding it find it hard to play the the um, the flam accent at speed explore that way in you know and then you know the flam parallel which I was just playing a second ago uh, by mistake is you can think about it as a, as a five played with three rights and three lefts. Right, left, right, 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 left, right, left, left, left. Because that's what, if you just lay the sticking out flat, evenly, that's what it is. And then you kind of realize that, oh yeah, oh, I need to control the double stroke in a certain way to play to play the three. Because uh, when you're playing you try, you, you've got to get that It requires a technical um, understanding of that moment of the three lefts where one of them has just got to be slightly earlier. So you need to use, you know, you, um, you need to use like a finger or I would, I would play, I would go in with a double, control the double with a small bit of hand movement through the double. So you get strike and a bit of movement and then pull the fingers which creates the third stroke. And that's where I, you know, this one-handed sort of triplet thing years ago, we sort of developed it by using that same, by using the, um, by using the same um, idea. You go, you, you're going in with a strike, closing the wrist so you're sort of locking the forearm to the hand and then releasing that lock in a controlled way in order to create three or four strokes. You can do it with twos as well, but the twos is more like the push-pull up and down thing. The triplet is again... A if 
I don't tend to go beyond fives because six, six is two, um, you know, six is two threes, isn't it? And also the five one is interesting because actually one, two, one, two, three, one, two, or one, two, one, two, three, one. So I tend to play the five like that. Uh, a lot of people play the five. One, two, three, four, one. One, two, three, four, one. But I'd... Yeah, and I have to sometimes, I, you know, I make, uh, I don't make a decision in the moment. I end up playing, <laughs> end up going for the wrong one, you know. Well, my five is, is a three and a two. One, two, three, one, two. Two, three, one, two. Because I'm quite good at playing the triplets and the twos. So we'll go between. It's quite a lot of activity going on in that, but it's quite satisfying when you get it down. And it's quite nice, you know, playing on the symbol. Ding, dig it in, 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 ding, ding, dig it in, dig it. That's what it's first kind of what it's for. Dig it, dig it in, dig it, dig it in, etc., etc. That thing that you hear. Tony Williams. Tony's a four and a one, I think. Dig it, dig it in, dig it, dig it in. I think that's what Tony does. That's what a lot of people say, and you hear it, and sounds like that. Again, it was it was Paul Wertigo for me who I heard playing that thing on Pat Metheny, but I think he was playing it with two hands on two pitch-paired flat rides. I don't know, maybe he wasn't. And Sanchez, when he was started playing with Metheny, he was, he was doing it with one hand, because that guy is ridiculous, technically. Unbelievable. And technique, in, in all senses of the word, just really phenomenal. I mean, for the um, with the um, with the coordination's frightening, you know. Real, um, very melodic drummer, very melodically layered drummer, very musical. Great sound as well, but quite loud. So it's just that, you know, a lot of um, sometimes we have to remember about the context. You know, playing these things within a context. Um, you know, if you're looking to be super flexible and be playing with lots of different people in lots of different situations, you really gotta you're gonna have to sort your sound out. So with the intensity of your sound out, you know, to be able to play at different dynamic levels in different sorts of rooms. Because if you don't sort that out, you've got no chance. You know. How are you gonna how are you gonna play those those ideas that require medium to sort of um, heavy weight? You know, I hear a lot of players, you know, on on you know around on records and on the internet and stuff who are all playing these fancy things. But they're all quite loud, and it's not they're not played at what I would say is is a fully useful dynamic. You know, so um, practice things super tight and super quiet if you can, just as a just as a matter of course. And I'll always say it again, you know, playing quietly comes through being strong. Strength really helps with quietness. Uh, it's one of the reasons why, you know, when I practice, I've said this before, I 
I do um, I do little weights. At the moment, I moved up to um, I've got to do the maths now. Two and a half, three, four kilos per hand. So I'm doing four kilos at the moment while I'm practicing. And then I've got these lovely little two and a half pound, um, which I think are one kilo, isn't it? I think not very good at that kind of maths. Um, these little two and a half pound dumbbells, which I also use, um, and the heavy sticks. But if you want to play quietly, if you want to get down there, you need you need to be strong. And you need to know what you're doing as well. You need to need to have experimented with that with that vibe. So anyway, yeah. So that was like 45 minutes to explain something which um, would normally take um, well, it just takes as long as it takes, doesn't it? But yeah, but it's been a busy few weeks. I had a very nice. Um, very lucky a couple of weeks ago I was down at Cambridge Folk Festival <clears throat> a fantastic band that I've been very lucky to work with a band called Tapestry uh, from South well they're from North and South Wales so they're two Welsh singers and um, one's from Anglesey and one's from Pembrokeshire so um, it was great to work with them and that band and an old friend um, in the band as well but a great bass player called Jake Newman who I've known for a long long time and not seen for a long long time because he moved away down to London um, a number of years ago and um, yeah and so I was uh, really lucky to do an album with them back in April well part of an album I don't know you know you've got to do these got to record these things and um, you end up on what you end up on and you don't end up what you don't end up on and that's all kind of part of the course really but um, was really it's really nice to go and do a session and then to be asked to do a gig and and then the you know and that was ages ago we talked about doing this gig and the, the you know the gig just happened and we had a really nice um really nice gig on the main stage on the on the second day of the festival it was really nice really busy and a really positive vibe really great audience so it was really beautiful um uh, and it had an interesting gig the night before with the same band. I was playing cajon. I had to just take a little cajon. We had this hand percussion only kind of rule on this acoustic club stage, um, which turned out to be a bit of a nonsense, actually. People had all kinds of stuff, electronic pads and stomp things and stuff going on, and electric guitars with amps and things. So it was a bit... It was a bit of a shame, really. But anyway, I took this cajon, and it was very, very badly mic'd up. It was mic'd up just totally wrong. And it was an, it was just a nightmare. The whole gig was a nightmare because of the cajon, you know. I felt really I felt really bad for for them because it was a really big deal, you know, for them for this their band, their new um, this new album they're bringing out and stuff to get a really nice gig at a really nice festival and to have somebody shove a, the wrong kind of mic inside it. And it was a real hurry as well. It was on those you know the person before was really irritating. They ran over on festival slot, which is kind of against the law, you know. Anyone who knows it does gigs, it's a very, very disrespectful thing if you're um, doing festival slots and you overrun. Even if the audience are crying for you to do more, you get off the stage because you've got your time and that's it, you know. The logistics that's going on uh, is is immense backstage with, the, with, with all these people that are helping you get your stuff together. And we went on, you know, we, we went on the stage late and we started on time. So we had a shorter sound check than we, we should have had really. But, you know, we, we started on time, even though somebody went off, off the stage five minutes late. And that's five minutes less for sound check for us. So I had a bit of a, that was a bit of a shame that the cajon was, was basically, 
sound check last and it was an afterthought and it was just a guy didn't know what he was doing with it out front of the house he had no idea what to do with this thing because he had it he had it too loud so i had to play it quieter and then he was trying to make it louder because i was playing quieter and he was just a nightmare it was a disaster you know and then it was feeding back when the bass played it was feeding back through the mic you know, just it's all these things are sent to trials, and yeah, I mean, I'm 51 years old and I've done hundreds of these kind of gigs, and yeah, another another situation throws something new at you, you know. So don't ever be surprised by the the misery and horror of it all. Sometimes of uh, of kind of of just one wrong mic and how much chaos it can cause, you know. Uh, but you know, in spite of that, we still had a nice gig, and then the, the day after, I was very lucky. Um, uh, I don't know his surname, but he's a guy called Nigel. He's a drum tech. He's actually drum teching for Gavin Harrison. He was showing me the pictures of... Um, oh, he's doing Porcupine Tree and he's doing Gavin's kit. He was showing me some of the pictures of the uh, of the new... His, his kind of the setup he's using for this tour, you know. Um, and he was a really nice guy. And so I was very lucky on the on the second day, uh, the, the, the group that was on first weren't using drums. So I managed to get... Um, after my free massage, which was really nice... I then um, managed to get on stage and get get set up before the first band, and it was on just on a riser. You know, it wasn't my own drums; it was backline that they had. But he had a fantastic, lovely his Yamaha kit. He put brand new heads on it. He tuned it, and it was perfect. You know, I I literally didn't change anything on the kit tuning wise. Um, it was like it was spot on for the for the music. You know, and uh, he was so super helpful. Um, so I was very lucky, and it was like you know he's the sort of person that if I had a tour and somebody said, oh you know you know do you need a, a tech, he it'd be like well, is this guy available? You know, can I afford can I afford him? Um, but yeah, someone like that who just uh, and then it was just you know I didn't take any gear with me, I just took sticks, so he had uh, quite a lot of symbols for me. Um, none of them were Istanbul's because they don't tend to have them as backline in the UK. So all the countries do, you know. Um, when I was in China in 2014, uh, that, you know, I had actually got some Istanbul symbols. I was, I was endorsed at the time, and the person that when I went over asked for them and actually got a set of symbols that I used for this whole tour that we did. And then a couple of the venues had Istanbul symbols, which was kind of interesting. So and and, and Agops, not not Mehmet's Agops. Um, so anyway, yeah, um, and it, it great. I, you know, just got, um, uh, got was able to get set up and then had a really really nice gig. And it was my first gig with them as well. So I'd done the obviously done the album and then not done anything since April and uh, not heard the music since we recorded it. Not I hadn't heard it mixed or anything. And then got uh, a couple of weeks before got sent through some stuff. So I had a chance to listen to it and just rem- try and remember what I was playing. But there were very you know there were specific parts and. Jake is such a musical bass player, and it it was really underpinning the music with with real simplicity, and that can be really challenging, you know, because you, you can come into a situation you're playing like a folk rock kind of thing. It's very easy to get generic, you know. Um, and I'm working on a project at the moment with um, an amazing musician called Ben Walker, who's um, I've known for a long, long time, and we we never really worked together before. We've known each other for a long time, and. We've been talking about making this album for ages, and I'm kind of helping to a little bit more than just the drums on the album. I'm a bit involved in a few more things, you know. But with everything that we're doing on that album, uh, and it's kind of a folk album, 
vocal album. With everything I'm kind of doing on an album, again, we're trying to stay away from the obvious in inverted commas. We're trying to keep, you know, trying to sort of do something that's um, very naturally, but um, but making you know making it our own and a, a certain kind of sound, you know. And it's quite an interesting configuration because the kind of band is quite a rocky band, almost like a Hornsby, Bruce Hornsby-esque kind of thing. Uh, but the vocal is very folk and, and more intimate than that, you know. So um, it's, yeah, really interesting dynamic. And uh, a couple of other really good old friends of mine, Pete Hughes and Ollie Collins, are involved in that project. So it's a really nice thing to to kind of get doing a few things with those guys again. So a lot there's been a lot of that going on over the last few weeks. And um, yeah, a few nice little gigs. But the, But the main thing is is kind of trying to get back into practicing and um, getting back into a routine having had a, a kind of very busy kind of chaotic sort of june june and july because of work you know and um, i'm back in work a little bit this week well this week i'm back in work I've got quite a few things on but um but then i'm off again which is great for the next um, two weeks after, or the rest of August, basically. So I'll be back in in September, um, and so just really looking forward to spending a bit more time um, at the drum kit. And the thing that's on, you know, the main thing that's on the table is um, is this kind of idea of practicing uh, things simpler things for a longer period um so i was like looking at some of my notes for previous podcasts you know and i kind of um you always make like a little note about something something comes in my head and make a note about it and in these last two or three weeks i've had loads of things come into my head and i haven't made any notes and they've just gone out of my head you know like oh i'm gonna remember that i'm never gonna remember that because that's what happens um but this idea keep coming back to this thing all the time of <clears throat> of practicing simpler things but for longer periods so you know the thing i've noticed when i've been learning new things and trying to play them in a loop and trying to play them over a certain amount of time is is a is a is a general lack of consistency um you know i can play things really great once but um, not more than twice. Um, slightly exaggerating. But just that thing of being able to play them for 10 minutes, you know. And the that, the analogy of um, a friend of mine told me a story years ago when he met somebody who was uh, involved in this Cirque du Soleil show. And I think I've told this before. And she, you know, he asked her what she practised to not, in order to do this show. And she said, I just climb ropes all day, you know, because I have to climb... I have to climb ropes for a few minutes in the show and it's really high intensity and she said i just i just climb ropes all day till i can't till i fall off till i can't climb ropes anymore you know and um it's also like a bit of that idea about when you do like uh you know dumbbells or some exercises you know you it's probably not great to just do like 10 or something or 20 you do till you can't do any more so you're always maxing out 
Um, it's what I was talking to Jake Newman about, actually. He's, he knows a lot about kind of physical education and um, sports science and stuff. And he was saying that, you know, you kind of tear the muscle so the muscle rebuilds bigger. And the only way you can do that is to max out, really, you know, do as many reps as you can until you can't pick the weight up anymore, you know. And that's what she was saying. Just climb the ropes until I fall off, until I can't climb ropes anymore. And I just build this strength up. Um, because in the show, and it's like in on the gig, you know, how long have you got to play that thing for? How how often do we really ever get asked to play the same thing for 10 minutes? Does that really ever happen? It, it, it happens occasionally for me. It happens more in the studio, actually, but... Um, but on a gig, occasionally you get asked to play a part, and and have no variance and and have no dynamic variety, but no also no um, no kind of um, no embellishment of the of the part. The part is just the part. Um, but the problem for me is a lot of the music that I play is the opposite of that. Playing jazz and having this kind of you know um, free reign, so to speak on uh, what i can do in the music can lead to really lead to ill discipline you know so it's um or just you know just getting the wrong idea about what what one's supposed to play in jazz you know it's all over the place it's all kind of flying about actually it's just really playing time you know and getting a really great time feel that people can then feel like they can play on top of and improvise over or feel secure in or whatever you know so yeah so um so anyway that's the next the practice then my next kind of practice thing is is going to be about that i think for the next month or so and then back into teaching starting again and it's so kind of again just sort of going back to some teaching things and sort of developing a little bit more some it's always about you know when you're when you're teaching you're all, you're also trying to kind of develop um yeah, you know, uh, develop not just the um, the materials, but the kind of um, the concepts and thinking behind the materials and about contextualizing all the time. You know, why would one want to practice something like this? You know, and always going back and re-questioning the value of what you're sharing and about whether or not it's useful. Because it can, because a lot of you know, a lot of what we play, because music moves on. So, especially the, a lot of the music that I'm not, I'm not involved in, but around, and a lot of people I teach are involved in. The, the music is moving on so quickly, and the rhythmic rhythm is is evolving so much. But still, these fundamentals of um, of what we work on and practice in order to get certain things together don't seem to change. But even though the um, the materials and the understanding of the materials becomes more complex, you know, one still needs to sound good. You know, one still needs to have good time, and one still needs to be able to control one's sound for the environment that you're playing within. You know, and be able to push the envelope either direction, the up or the down. So. Um, yeah, so that's kind of, you know, that's kind of what's going on, really. Um, but, yeah, it's good to have got this kind of done before I go back to work tomorrow, which is a bit of a, a bit full on. Uh, I've been had a couple of weeks off, over two weeks off, actually, and 
been um, it's been very very busy two weeks though with the music then the next two weeks i'm off i'm hoping to be much quieter um gigs are very very quiet now um some stuff going on through the autumn and uh, i've got to get some um some stuff sorted out for those and then i've been doing a bit of drum diy anybody that's um, friends of mine on instagram will have seen i've got richard newbies doing some uh, work for me i managed to get down to see him um, when i went to cambridge it was shows a sort of killed two birds with one stone there that's a hideous sort of phrase about that um just that thing of you know go because i was going out of cambridge i said is there any chance i can drop these drums off and then we had a chat about what i wanted to do and i got this 16 by 18 bass drum which um sounds hideous i have to say it sounded hideous um that's the now past tense because um uh, i don't think um the former owner of that drum will ever listen to any of these podcasts but if he did i apologize joe because the drum is going to be chopped it's going down to a i've gone for 16 by 10 i want a really useful little bass drum that's kind of portable and it'll have proper hoops on it so it'll look it'll look 16 by 12 ish you know probably a little bit deeper than that but and then the wrap we take this is one of the things that may not work the wrap may not come off um because it's not very good quality wrap i'm afraid we've discovered um i did some drilling so so richard newby bought me some spurs and i don't know anybody gig with me or know me know that my um my sonar drums the phonics didn't come with spurs on them they they had these dw spurs that go on the hoops which i'm not a fa- i was never a fan of and, and then it was a bit of a you know just that thing of an annoying thing of having to set the drum kit up and always having to have a drum key handy to put these spurs onto the bass drum it's just irritating and then and then i had a gig uh, a couple of years ago i did a gig uh well it was yeah 18 months ago and, and I, I pulled one out of the bag and it had broken so the claw had broken on it so it wouldn't even attach to the bass drum so i didn't have any spur at this bass drum I had one spur luckily I, I put it on the side where I had the tom so it uh, kind of balanced it out and managed to lean the rest of the bass drum on um on the, the the other drums and the yamaha pedals are pretty good because they've got a good plate on the bottom of them and they do actually support the drum more than you think but but yeah that was when I, I was like that was when i made that decision i want to get some proper spurs and so richard got me these gibraltar spurs and and um and I kind of, well, he kind of persuaded, well, he talked me into, and I also sort of decided to, to drill the shells myself, and I've just done all three. I've done the 18, 20, and 22. Man, I'd have to take them down to him and have him do them. And I've done a good job of them, actually. I've, I, you know, the measuring, the measuring was the main thing. I took a long time measuring. And then um, when I did the 20, I did the 22 yesterday. I did the other two last week. I did the 18 first and took ages on that. I took about two hours to put the first bracket on, you know, because I was I did like five stages of drilling. And yesterday I've, I got these really nice drill bits that have got these um, got these kind of routers on them, which basically they make a countersunk. Uh, they're not a countersink thing. They're, they're, they make a hole that's um, that's two different depths from the drill. Um, the drill that you're using and they're the perfect size for these um 12 mil i think for these uh for the brackets for the, the for the bass drum uh, spur brackets and uh, 
when I did the 22 yesterday, I kind of got my head around it all, and I did a very, I did a very good job of them yesterday, and they went on a lot easier. Um, I was having a nightmare with the with the first two two spurs because even though I measured them and everything, it's just that thing of uh, you know, not if you don't have a pillar drill. And you're hand drilling, which, you know, hand drilling's fine. And Richard has said to me, it's fine. If you're confident with a hand drill, it's fine. As long as you've got, you know, you can, you can got something to line everything up with and you feel like you can go straight. The, the great thing about a pillar drill is you know that you're going straight every time. And you also know, because you've got a flush edge, flush edge at the back of the pillar drill, you're going up against something that's exactly the same distance every time. So, you know... That was the only thing that was freaking me out, all the measurements. So getting all the measurements right. And then yesterday I, did, I put the 20, the, the spurs on the 22 and, and did that was the, the best job I did of all of all three pairs, you know. Um, as you say, practice makes things better, you know. Um, so so I've been yeah, doing a bit of drum DIY and um, I'm considering putting a Yamaha... Um, putting a Yamaha uh, Tom mount onto the 22 uh, because it hasn't got one. The, the 18, the 20 and the, and the 16 have, they've all got Yamaha fittings for, for the Tom arm, for the stem, you know. But the 22 hasn't. And I'm just thinking about actually having it on the 22 because it means you don't have to carry another snare drum stand. Um, and... Yeah, just like the idea of because um, with the 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 sonar drums, I've got all Yamaha Tom fittings, and I've got both got the long single stem with the single knuckle, and then I've got the um, the double or the quad. It's, it's the triple one. You can put cymbal arm in it, but it's you, you know you can put the two Tom stems and, and a cymbal arm in the back. Um, and as you know, anybody that knows me knows my I am a big fan of the Yamaha hardware. Fundamentally, I've got Yamaha bass drum pedals. I've had them for twenty years, and they've been phenomenal. Got three of them. Got two of the direct drives, and one with a chain, which um, Ollie Cunningham, a great keyboard player, MD guy, gave me as a present. Um, and I've still got that here. And then, um, and then I'm using these super lightweight Tama things and the DW lightweight. But I've got I've got five of the Tama ones. The really light. Uh, amazing, like 800 kilos or whatever they weigh, you know. Sorry, 800 grams, not kilos. 800 kilos. Yeah, nearly a, nearly a ton. Um, simple standing in your hardware bag. That'd be fun carrying that around. Um, anyway, I feel like I'm wittering on now. I feel like I'm, I just feel like it feels like a natural end, but I actually felt like I haven't talked about anything. So, um, but yeah, the drum DIY thing is good. And I was watching some, getting into watching a couple of things on YouTube. A um, couple of people that are really good. Um, I can't remember the name of one. If I was watching this morning, it's um, oh, this is really sorry. This is really poor form because it's a recommendation as for a YouTube channel that I would that I would say is. Um, uh, I just want to get the name right. I do know I do know who it is, but I just want to get the name of it right. And a lot of you'll know if you're really into the drum thing. I'm not that. I'm not massively into the R David R. Yeah, and I think he used to be part of Drumio. Um, I don't know a lot about Drumio, by the way. I've watched a few things on Drumio, but he's um, he's a, he's a, he's a cool guy. I like his videos. Um, he does these little drum hack things and stuff. And um, one of the ones today was I always 
when I'm in Lidl, I'm always buying these things from the middle aisle, you know, the middle of Lidl, which is why we all go a little, really, because there's power tools that aren't really expensive. And um, they always have these, like, parquet floor, um, like, pads for, for, um, for furniture and for, you know, and also um, for putting underneath, you know, just, like, Anything you want to put on the floor or on a on a glass table or something, it protects it from, you know, these little pads. Um, and uh, I didn't realise, I was watching one of his videos this morning and I realised I had these big square, um, these kind of felt pads that, that, that have a sticky back. And it's like, oh yeah, I could cut, I've got like nine of them because I bought a few of these packs because I use the smaller ones all the time for, for cupboard doors and all kinds of stuff. And and the the little silicon the, the the little silicon ones which have the sticky back are really really useful for all kinds of things. Um, if you've got a banging door on anything, you know, a, a bathroom cabinet or something. This it's not supposed to be a DIY show, by the way. Oh, I am in a shed, but um, wrong kind of shed. But um, I realised that these I've got, I had loads of these felt pads, big squares, and I could cut them down. And so like. Um, put them onto the bass drum hoop so it's like a bass drum um pedal protector bass drum hoop protector for the bass drum pedal sorry that's what i'm trying to say uh, but i have ordered for my uh, 22 20 and 18 and this is going to be sacrilege to some people because i've got the original sonophonic metal hoops which everyone whoop whoops about um i don't like them and never have i don't like metal hoops on drums and I, ne I never have um sorry they do sound a certain way um but i prefer a wooden hoop so i've asked i've ordered three uh sets of hoops for my phonics which richard newbie's gonna um he's gonna stain for me really beautiful kind of natural wood staining um not cheap but i'm really looking forward to that and then um, i'm gonna be able to put my fantastic new invention with my little felt pad uh, bass drum pedal protector onto those new hoops which I'm very excited about these are the sort of things that you know that really make life um, worth interesting worth living you know but anyway the things that I kind of really enjoy so that's that's kind of it really um, and uh, yeah the drum shed I put the new false ceiling in the drum shed I don't know if I short talked about that before but that was another one of my little projects uh, with the um, with the polycarbonate and the foam built in a built fra uh, uh, a cross frame, so you so you can take the whole thing out. It's really easy to take it out, um, but it's worked really well and the sound is really tight in there. So I'm really pleased with how it's ended up and getting quite a nice sound in there for recording now. It's um, you just have the option to you know to really add anything you want reverb wise to really quite a controlled and dry sound and the, the the ribbon mic's got lovely low end still it hasn't lost anything um in in uh, by by basically i'm covering up all the wood on the ceiling which you would think would be a bit of a shame but i actually had quite a lot of um studio kind of foam dampening on the ceiling actually so i wasn't getting a huge amount of that anyway um and i think if if the, if the room was actually soundproofed I would I would have the wooden ceiling probably um, exposed because it, it does have a nice sound. There is, um, but because it's not soundproof, you've got to make a compromise, haven't you? So, uh, 
So that's the kind of final bit of uh, drum DIY stuff. And um, and yeah, and thanks Richard Cass. I bought a snare drum off Richard Cass. If you've not heard my interview with Richard, Rich, uh, it's a really nice interview. It's quite a long time ago. Um, he's a mega drummer, a very interesting guy. He's also very, uh, very into his DIY stuff as well. Um, he often posts things online of him, you know, building something with a welder or an angle grinder or something. Um, he's also like a rhythmically, check him out if you haven't. He's a rhythmically quite extraordinary drummer and uh, also kind of, um, well, polyrhythmically and coordinationally, you know, but uh, I think it's a kind of melody thing linked for him. Anyway, you know, you can ask him about his concept. I'm not going to tell you about his concept, but he's just mega. And anyway, he he had a snare drum, this, this Sonor um, artist series, brass snare drum. And I've been after a heavy brass snare drum for a while. I've got a Black Beauty, which is lovely, but um, I've been after a heavy drum for a few years. And um, I took a punt on this and he sent it down to me and it sounds really great. So I had a weird thing with the, with the snare wires and the snare bed and um changed them from some some 16 strand um, custom sound uh, pure sound sorry um and they sound it sounds amazing and then i then i bought a replacement set of uh, 24 strand pure sounds and they had the same problem as the snares that came with the drum there was like a weird remnant a rattle that we couldn't i couldn't get rid of whereas the 16 strands sounds perfect the drum sounds amazing so i've kind of uh, settled on that um, so that was kind of interesting little learning experience because when I first got the drum I thought there's something wrong with this drum or there's something wrong with the um, snare bed or there's something wrong with the with the snare strainer or and it's one of those snare strainers that you can do on either side so um, anyway I'm going to call it a day there because um, my tea beckons very soon so um, thanks for listening um, keep practicing Stay positive and um, I'll be back uh, again next month. So bye for now.